Open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Hebrews. We'll be in chapter 11 this morning. One more time. We're working through the book of Hebrews, and we've spent four weeks in this chapter, which work us through the Bible's story, through the thread of faith. It's page 108 in the Pew Bible provided for you. We'll read in a moment verses 32 through 40. Grateful for Matt Jackson's preaching last week when I was out and the saints at Zionsville Fellowship in Indiana greet you. I had a great morning with them. Now let's read our passage. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak, and Samson, and Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to be refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world is not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. All these though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Well, can you relate with this passage that I've just read? I don't mean in these especially fantastic answers to prayer or or non-answers, terrible deaths. I mean in this first line here, what more shall we say for time would fail me to tell of and then a list and then a list nested in that list and then we have multiple lists and I count about three levels grammatically deep of lists. That's when the preacher says, okay, now let me bring this together uh, and then he puts a third of his sermon in a sentence um, that is very long. It's, it's seven, eight minutes, ten minutes left. And uh, you thought that he gave you a signal that he was wrapping up. This almost has the feel of that. Twice our author has told us he can't go into so much detail. In this case, he goes into a lot of detail, so, so it seems. I count 32 items on the list. Just imagine how long that sermon would have been. It's 34 items if you combine sheep and goats and den and caves, but we'll give him, we'll give him those. Well, I can relate with this. Uh, I can relate with not having quite the time uh, left for what I had planned, and so uh, you get it across uh, with fewer words, with less time. Even sometimes it's not a matter of not having time left, it's by design. There are things that are important to say, but we don't mean to just be distracted by them. Maybe it's a caveat 
Maybe I'm letting you know that I know about those things that are on your mind too, and I might say, now we might spend our time this way this morning, or we might spend our time this way, but we're going to spend our time this way. You see what I did there? Well, he's doing this as planned. He did not set out to tell the whole Bible story with each character getting the same time that he gave Abraham, for example, that gets a third of the book. No, what more shall I say? He's, he's gathering your attention again to start into, yes, what are some lists. But it's not just a matter of getting content across efficiently, which is certainly what he does here. It's a matter of getting a message across through that content. And this is inspired. This is better than sermons. This is an inspired sermon. What is the message he's getting across in this last leg of this chapter? Well, we've heard about Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Moses and Rahab and others at some length. Why keep going? I've got some answers for that that I'll, I'll reveal as we, as we go this morning. In short, it is through faith that all of these characters saw the great days that they saw or, or the hard and terrible days that they saw, humanly speaking. Faith, as we've described it, working from those first few verses of this chapter, is how we see God and see the promises that he has made for us in the future. Faith is how we receive God's commendation and how we lay hold of his promises in the future. Faith is not a blind matter, a blind leap. It is not seeing with the eyes, but it is seeing with the eyes of the heart, the unseen things on the basis of God's sure word which reveals them to us. It's not a matter that yields Uh, promises now necessarily, but they are promises in the future. This faith is not itself our showing up to God with a work that we perform, but it is casting ourselves wholly in dependence upon God to do the work that we could never do. And it is, we could add, not just seeing and receiving, but it is a matter of of living. It is how we live, for we see that faith moves these characters to act on behalf of what they believe, even in whom they believe. They see God and see Him as faithful, so they trust His word and act on it. And that acting by faith pleases Him. Acting apart from faith for any other reason does not please Him. But acting on faith does, and it is on account of our faith that we may receive God's commendation as righteous. Faith is not merely saying the things that we believe, but believing them way down so that we live on account of them. Faith is not merely a feeling, but it is a whole person thing. Well, what more is there to say after exploring Abraham's life and Noah's life and Moses's and Rahab's. That's a lot. Isn't that good enough? Well, apparently not for our authors. So what more is there to say? Well, let's explore that. We'll consider what some saw God do in their day. We'll consider what others 
saw when God apparently did nothing, and then we'll consider what all of them saw in us. What some saw God do, this is verses 32 through 35. We have quite a list here, a list of, I'll divide this for you as you look at the page. We have a list of names, Gideon through Samuel and then the prophets, who through faith, and then we have a list of, of uh, actions, what God did, God's actions and theirs, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, and there is a list of feats. We have a list of names, and then we have a list of feats accomplished through faith. If uh, the former sermons, we were working as if through a gallery, a portrait gallery, and we would look at one you know, one character in their face, and we would study it a bit, and maybe they were doing something. Noah's building an ark. Uh, Rahab is is uh, whispering to the, to the spies. Um, in this case, uh, they're all crammed into the same photo. It's like one of these, you hold your arm out, everyone get in, okay? So they're not going to see all their faces with the same detail. And actually, it's an action shot. All this stuff is happening in the same shot. Isn't that amazing? All right, so th- what I'm going to do for you is better than what he did for his people. Feeling a little guilty, not going to get into all the details. Well, what more shall I say? Time would fail me to do so. I'll give you a sentence or two each, okay? And to the extent that you're hungry to know a little bit more, well, go read the Bible because you have more time on your own than I have with you on Sunday. And keep showing up on Sunday because we get through all this in due time anyways. Now, this author is cashing in on his, his people's biblical literacy and their knowledge of all of these stories. He's putting them all, all together under this rubric of faith. We have a list of, of what I'll say are unimpressive names, and then we have a list of impressive feats. So, unimpressive names. Now, it would seem to me that you have an impressive name if it gets in the Bible. But, you know, when you start reading the stories, even the best of them, not impressive. Not impressive on their own. Not oppressive, impressive apart from their impressive, wonder-working, gracious, and great God. That is the case for these characters, too. And he's not hiding that. He's not pretending their stories are not dynamic. And frankly, their failures are not sub-sub-sub points in their story. It's kind of their story. The thing that God did is in spite of their lives in a lot of case, but on account of their faith to show that he is a great, wonder-working, faithful God. Now, these are unimpressive names. Gideon evaded his call when God called to him. God called to Gideon and assigned to him a task and he would be reluctant to fulfill it. Barak timidly, timidly took up arms, deferring only to what God called him to when Deborah would support him. Timid Barak. Samson scorned his own holy assignment and status, made strong by God and leveraging that strength for his lusts and his rage. 
And Jephthah, Jephthah vowing his daughter's life in exchange for victory, even keeping that vow against God's very commandments when victory is had. And and we know the story of David. David, a man after God's own heart. David, obedient and courageous and a man of faith, surely. David, a man who committed adultery. David, a man who murdered Bathsheba's husband to protect himself from what he had done. Oh, a man after God's own heart and a sinner, all of these sinners. But improbable, impressive feats. And now we make our way to the second list. I have all the first list highlighted in orange, and then I have the second list highlighted in, in blue, and it's a big block of blue. Conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, and obtained promises. This is the first of three bundles. You can bundle this list in groups of three. And these are the broad strokes of victory that all of these characters we've just read about saw on account of their faith. Gideon routing the Midianites with with a group cut down to 300 by God's direction who rout a massive army with torches and clay jars. God tells them to break the clay jars. The enemies are are rushed into a panic. Long story short, they win in, in precisely and profoundly an improbable way. This is consistently God's way of working through his people. We see it in each of these stories. Blow the trumpet, break the clay jars, and they win. Not unlike the story we heard about last week with Jericho marching around seven times, blowing trumpets, shouting, and who can give credit to any man for that plan? No one. What faith it was to follow and what faith it was for Gideon and for Barak in these cases. Sinners though they were, but they showed up believing the word of God, acted on it, and God did what he said he would do. Jephthah routing the Ammonites and the Amorites, and Samson single-handedly defeating the Philistines, and David showing up with a stone and taking out Goliath. Maybe the more familiar story for us, you don't need to turn there, but let me remind you about what happens in this story of David and Goliath. And it may be that you've heard, this, heard of the story of David and Goliath, and you know one was big and one was small, and the underdog won. But in terms of the details of the story, oh, he was an underdog, presented as the youngest among his brothers, staying at home and making his way to the military field and back to home to make sure the sheep were taken care of, told he can bring some cheese and sandwiches to his older brothers who are all ready for battle. Goliath and the Philistines insist that Goliath will take one of their men Saul is scared, he's got all his armor, and he's a big enough man, but he's fearful and scared. Am I a dog that you would come to me with sticks, he says to David. And what does David say to Goliath? In fact, I was looking at this story and considering how I would present it to you, and I was actually listening for what you're about to hear after he takes out Goliath, and I thought, oh no, that's right, it's before (laughs) 
Hence, his boldness to approach Goliath before David takes Goliath out with a stone. Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And he's just starting. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Well, how else did Israel get out of Egypt and cross that Red Sea but by the Lord's miraculous parting of the waters? How else did they take Jericho? How else were these victories won through the stories of the judges? Oh, they had been told down the years to David and the people of Israel were scared. Their king was scared. David wasn't scared. He knew his Lord. He knew his Lord was faithful. He knew his Lord had this power. He believed the word of God and he spoke it. Like he, like he was seeing with his own eyes the death of the Philistine and the conquering of that army right before him. Now that was faith. And he wasn't hoping. He had a sure hope in the certain word of God and he boldly stepped forward. Unassuming, smaller, unarmed practically and the Lord kept his promise as sure as he said. And that was David. David against Goliath. Conquered kingdoms and forced justice. Obtained the promises. And David there obtained a kind of promise, a kind of fulfillment, we could say. It wasn't all the fulfillment of God's promises, but Abraham, David, Noah even had experienced something of the fulfillment of God's promises. They certainly received promises they received also a foretaste of their, of their fulfillment. Now the second set of three. Do we even call that a set? The second three, triad. The first are broad victories. Now these are personal victories, each dealing with deliverance in the face of death. Some stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, and others escaped the edge of the sword. Well, Samson and David both killed lions, but Daniel appears to be in mind here, who refused to bow down to the gods of his day to keep the king's edict. Was thrown into a den with lions. Didn't talk himself out of it. And was delivered. His friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, quenched the power of fire. Oh, and we've got to hear what they had said. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter of bowing down to the gods of their day. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace... And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. 
They didn't rationalize that, oh, well, it's a golden image and not a real God. No, no, no. That act of bowing to that image was a sign of allegiance and a sign of a departure from their faith. And the Lord delivered them from the fire. From the edge of the sword, various prophets were pursued. The next triad, we were made, some were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. And this, this set of three, I can't help but hear an emphasis on how God goes about all of this. So he delivers victory into the hands of his people when they believe his word. He delivers some from death. And whatever he does and whenever he does it, he is often pleased to show himself strong in spite of human weakness, even through human weakness. Some were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. You feel weak. That's not a problem for your God. You feel weak. In that relationship, in your home, do you feel weak against that temptation? Do you feel weak against that challenge? The Lord is not too weak to strengthen you, to work through you, and to show himself strong. Do you feel weak in the face of death? Like it's maybe something you're not able to fix or remove or avoid. Well, you are. And the message of Christianity is the God of heaven is stronger than death and he has sent his son to die and he has raised his son from the dead for he has power over death and he is glad to bring you along with through death unto life because he has paid for all of your sins and he has put the head of the serpent and the devil under his foot. So that the Christian can look at that great obstacle, weak in his or her human flesh, fully confident of God's strength to save. Which is why we're here this morning. We need to hear that again. Which leads us to this capstone among the list. There's a period and then here, women received back their dead by resurrection. Yes, that did happen in the Old Testament. Testament here and there. Oh, in such, such privacy, even in the exact instances, these aren't the more famous stories in the Bible, but Elijah staying with a poor pagan woman, that woman's son dies, and she having obeyed and believed the word of the prophet comes to him, and he raises her son from the dead. Elisha after Elijah, staying with a wealthy woman who is barren, unable to have children. He intercedes for her. She has a child. That child dies, and he prays for her, and the child is raised from the dead. Like, what are these stories doing in the Old Testament? Almost teasing us. Like, God can do it. Well, why doesn't he do it for our children who, who die or our loved ones? who? Well, he's... These are foretastes, they're flickers, they're promises, there's this what's coming, that's what he's saying. Anytime you see a resurrection like that, God has the power, he is able, and we confess that and we wait on him. Even here we see that our God is stronger than death and he has reversed its course 
from time to time to show us what his plans are. The point, our God can work on behalf of his people through faith anytime, in any circumstance, in the face of any trouble and against any odds. He can. Does he always? Well, the the other lists to come would answer that question in the negative. And so we move now from a list of names and incredible feats to a bleaker list. Could be a discouraging list, but isn't. I'll show you why. We move from what some saw God do now to what others saw when God did nothing. Apparently nothing. Verses 35 through 38. Now this list here, okay, some were tortured, Others suffered mocking, flogging, chains, imprisonment. Some were stoned, sawn in two, killed by the sword. Went about in skins with sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted. I'm out of words at this point. He's a better preacher. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. Not a great advertisement for Christianity. Like you don't put that on the billboard. And yet Jesus calls us to come carry our cross. Actually, isn't the billboard for Christianity a cross? There's more going on there than suffering. There's the gift of God's Son and His love for us. His death as our high priest to save us from our sins. We know that. But the cross is also a call to die. And that matches what we, what we see here. It matches the pattern that his people have known down, down the ages. Reminds me a little bit, this chapter does, of those pharmaceuticals commercials. Um, you know, there are countries where they're not allowed to do that. Where you go to the doctor and the doctor tells you what you need. You say, uh, it hurts over here. And the doctor says, well, then what you need is this. Like, great. If you think about these pharmaceutical commercials... It's like, ooh, I get, to, I get to go to the doctor and say, hey, I'd like some of that. That sounded great. Uh, but you probably won't do that because of all the, the fine print that they have to read out loud. We can be glad for the fine print. This kind of sounds like that, except it's not exactly presented as fine print. It's boldly presented as normative for God's people, at least through the Old Testament. Of course, we know from Jesus, this kind of thing can be normative for us. Torture and suffering and flogging and You can break the list down into three parts. You may experience persecution. Tortured, refusing to accept release. Well, it's it's not that those who were tortured, refusing to accept release, could have been released, but they preferred torture or preferred torture for its reward, and we're promised reward for our suffering. It's that release would have come with a with an ask, a demand to give up faith in the word of God. Well, of course, we can't do that. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. You might suffer persecution, loud and clear. You might suffer death. They were stoned. That's likely Jeremiah, prophet Jeremiah, according to tradition. 
They were sawn in two. According to tradition, that was Isaiah. They were killed with the sword. Death. A real possibility for conversion to Christianity. Not so much here now. Could be here later. We can pray not. That is the possibility for Christians in other places. That is what's at stake in conversion. That is what our sent ones are asking their new friends in new places far away to do. To step out all alone apart from friends and family and to mark themselves through baptism and repeatedly through the Lord's table as prisoners of the Lord and as marked men and women. Subject possibly to stoning, to being sawn in two, or whatever other imaginative forms of death humans come up with. They are all operative in our own day. Death, and you might also experience destitution. This is lifestyle deprivation. Does that relate with you more? Like maybe not the same house, maybe not the same job, maybe not the same things. They went about in skins and sheep of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. We don't live in those kinds of places right now, and we wear decent clothes. That's great. But many of our brothers and sisters are wandering about in faraway places. They don't look so great, and their lifestyle isn't what they would want it to be. Persecution, death, and destitution are all real possibilities for the Christian. In fact, as we read the Bible, the New Testament, the words of Jesus, we ought to wonder what's going on if, in fact, this is not our lot to some extent. If, in fact, there is no cost for our faith. Lean into the costs. Even rejoice in them as these saints did on their best days. Well, we've moved in this list this morning, these lists from the question of how did they do it? Conquering kingdoms and quenching the power of fire. And the answer was, well, through faith, God did it on their behalf. And now we move to the question of how did they endure it? And we consider that this list here is not a fine print like those commercials where you're supposed to think, well, maybe I'm not supposed to take this. It's actually part of the deal. It's actually part of the pitch. It's a part of the commercial. How did they do that? Well, through faith. How did, now here, how did they endure that? What we're actually seeing in all of this suffering is the faithfulness of God and men and women who knew it and went all the way for it who gave their whole lives to their Lord and their lives were at some point required of them for that. And we'll, put, we'll press into that answer by faith with two insights here. The first one from 35, verse 35, you'll notice it. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release. Now, why did they refuse to accept release? Remember, they were looking forward Considering God faithful, they refused to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Apparently, 
without the fullness of the revelation of God that we have in the New Testament scriptures, these Old Testament saints were looking forward to something greater than this life in this place. Something bigger, something better, something longer. They refused to accept release knowing that if they were killed, they would be just fine for they would rise again one day to a better life. And so here's my obligatory annual reminder, low-hanging fruit in our day for almost every sermon that touches on suffering, that we do not live for our best life now. The very best life any human can live is, biblically speaking, a life of faith in which everything could be taken from you because you have believed in the invisible God and what he has promised to you. But that is not the best life as we measure life in this world these days. So remember that. And consider that that list of all the things that God did for others, conquering kingdoms, quenching the power of fire and stopping the mouths of lions, even bringing children back from the dead. Yes, that's better. That's what we would pray for rather than than these things in the second half of the passage. But they're just foretastes of what God has in store for us all. The best you might pray for in terms of healing and restoration and the fixing of circumstances in this age, in this life, if God grants it, is just a foretaste of what he has in store for all of us through the resurrection from the dead. It really is. That list up there, on the one hand, I want to say they had it better than the group on the bottom list. But actually, they've all got it the same at the end of the day. So how did they do this? How did they endure all this? Well, they endured by faith in resurrection to a better life. And it is why they and we, friends, can give not just parts of our life, but our whole life to Christ Because Christ has promised and purchased for us eternal life with him. But there's a second detail we can add to this by faith if we press in on verse 38. And I just love the way that it comes off the page. Paul will digress in his letters. This letter, remember, is a sermon... And sometimes it really feels like that. It feels like that when he says, what more can I say? Time would fail me. Let me get all this in real quick. It also feels like that when we get an aside like this. Did you catch it? Verse 37, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. It is almost like our author can hear what his readers are hearing at this point. Oh God, please no, don't let that happen to me. And he doesn't say, now listen, it doesn't go this way for most of us. Now listen, now he will say, we we haven't suffered to the point of death yet. If you're hearing the letter, he'll say that in coming texts. What does he want to say as he's going through this litany of suffering and destitution? 
destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains. In other words, in other words, the comfort isn't maybe this won't happen to you. The comfort is this world that rejects you and hates you, whose ideology drives one to kill your teachers and your children, whose politicians and media smear you even for it, astoundingly, offensively. This world that rejects you, it's not worthy of you. You feel rejected. You are rejected here. You are not rejected. You are commended by your Father in heaven. And what you see with your eyes and those headlines, blood in the streets, no, no, no. That is not reality for you. You are honored and commended. This world is not all there is. It is certainly not your home. You will rise again to a better life. How did they endure all of this? It was by faith that they endured in resurrection to a better life and in a commendation that is better than their very lives. So friends, let us live for a resurrection better than life and let us live for God's commendation that is better than life. It is ours by faith. It is laid hold of by faith. I'm preaching the word to you. I'm saying this to you on the basis of this printed text that we've received down from, from ages past. I'm saying it's from God. You're not going to get this from anywhere else. You can't run a test and find it out. You can look at the faith of those around you and you can understand that faith and the endurance as proof bringing into visible reality, if you will, the invisible truth that our God is faithful and his promises are sure. These Old Testament saints that, that accomplished these great feats and that endured these great troubles Looked to God who is faithful, so let us do the same. They looked ahead and they greeted God's promises from far off. And so to the extent that his promises feel far off, let us do the same. But from their position, they also looked to something else. They looked to us. Did you see that in verses 39 and 40? All these, though commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised. They died looking forward to it. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. They looked to the God who was faithful and they greeted promises from afar and they also, they greeted us from Afar. I move from what some saw God do right before their very eyes to what others saw, saw with the eyes of their heart, the resurrection when God apparently was doing nothing. 
now what all of them saw in us. Because this rehearsal of the Bible's story was necessary for this sermon's original hearers. They were weak-kneed and their legs were failing and they were struggling to hold on when their property was being pillaged, when they were marked out in their day. And he isn't discouraging them with this prospect, but he's encouraging them by saying that you are surrounded by the faithful who have been there and through it. Even the Lord Jesus has been there and through it. And when it did not look like God's promises were coming true or like he was faithful and it sure didn't feel like it in the body of the Lord Jesus. Oh, God was being faithful to keep all of his promises. The darkest moment, the most unjust day in the history of the world was the day in which while man was lawless and committing the greatest evil, our God was working about the greatest good for you and for me. And three days later, Jesus rose from the dead to prove all of that is true. And from afar, they saw something of this coming. And they saw us. What did they see? They saw something better for us and they saw something better for themselves. What does that mean? Well, it means all that the Lord Jesus has brought to fruition through his death and resurrection and ascension... And his life as the incarnate son, all that the Lord Jesus has brought as our great high priest who has lived for us and died for us, a perfect sacrifice, could not have happened had God's plans terminated with some lesser, more immediate answer to their prayers in their day. But they were looking forward to the fulfillment of God's ancient and early promise that a son of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. That Abraham's children would fill the earth as the stars fill the sky. That God's glory would fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. They were looking forward to this. And in the new covenant and through the new covenant work of our great high priest Jesus, we have the inauguration of all that they were looking forward to. You and I have the very Spirit of God, the presence of God with us, even speaking to us through His Word this morning us and assuring us that we are His. We have in this way greater reason, all the more reason for confidence than they even had in the face of their troubles. So, friends... When it does not seem that God is working with your eyes, know with the eyes of your heart that God is ever at work. He was at work to raise the Lord Jesus from the dead, and he will do that for us. See God work. When all we see with our eyes is our own rejection in this world, know for sure that you are commended on account of your faith in the invisible God. And this world is not worthy of you. When you feel helpless and when you feel weak, remember God's power that raised Jesus will raise you as well. 
friends, a word about finishing well. I expect we'll all arrive at our last day with regrets, and I think one of the clearly implied messages of this chapter is that our Lord commends those who believe his promises to the end, even with their sin, even with their past. This list right here of men who are commended for their faith, this whole chapter, it's good that we have Rahab in there, a prostitute. It's a dicey list, and you're a dicey people, capable of much, much worse as I am than we've done. And who knows what's in store for us and what pressures we'll find ourselves under. But we have every reason to refuse to accept release. Every reason not to feel ashamed because we have the commendation of God. Friends, finishing well as a Christian means finishing in the faith. To finish is to finish well. To finish, to finish as a Christian is to, is to finish believing wholeheartedly with confidence that the Lord Jesus is God's Son come for you, died for you, raised for you. To cast yourself wholly until the end on the Lord Jesus in complete dependence Acknowledging that what you need God to do for you in the face of death, only he can do, and we have no hope apart from him. I hope that he is yours. He is mine. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we confess to you that we come to a list like this, and we wish that we we tasted in our experience more tangible fulfillments of your promises. But we say with, with those characters from the page of Daniel that our God is able to save and do whatever he wants for us now, but he will raise us up in the last day. And we confess with scripture that every knee will bow to the Lord Jesus. And so we bow to him now and we confess him as the risen Lord now. And Father, when we fail and when our human plans fail and when humans fail us, we remember that you do not fail and your plans and your designs do not fail. And this promise of a better life with a commendation that is better than life will never fail and we lay hold of it now. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.